Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. Chris Fuller is the Chief Communications Officer at Inspire Brands, a multi-brand restaurant company whose portfolio includes Arby's, Baskin-Robbins, Buffalo Wild Wings, Dunkin', Jimmy John's, Rusty Taco, and Sonic Drive-In Restaurants. Chris's prior experiences include stints at Yum! Brands and Pizza Hut, as well as an early position as Press Secretary for the U.S. House of Representatives. In this wide-ranging conversation with Lippy Taylor CEO Paul Dyer, Chris dishes out advice on managing an array of disparate brands that align towards a singular mission, how to properly execute CSG campaigns that make real differences, and how a culture of empathy is the key to building strong and resilient teams. All of this and so much more on today's episode of Frictionless Marketing. Now, without further ado, here is Chris Fuller, Chief Communications Officer of Inspire Brands. Chris, thank you for joining us here. I'm excited to speak with you today. Um, I thought we would start by um, actually citing something you've said in multiple interviews, right? Which is that at Inspire Brands, we believe, you believe in doing the right thing first and foremost, because actions speak louder than words. And of course, We're in communications, so we do a lot of speaking, and yet you've also played an important role in clear, specific actions, things like raising money for philanthropic purposes, um, leading team members to volunteer, um, launching a COVID relief fund, uh, launching the Young Achievers Academy, lots of things that are sort of clear actions um, from a person whose role is really, first and foremost, communications. So can you maybe just um, tell us from a leadership perspective, you know, how do you think about building this culture of action, um, uh, you know, while also obviously needing to communicate about everything that the company is doing? Absolutely. Uh, first off, thanks for having me on the, the program. Glad to be here. Glad to have the opportunity to participate. Um, and I think, you know, what you started with in your question was the key phrase, and that's that we're action oriented. We really have a bias toward action at Inspire. And so when it comes to supporting the community, it's as much about being hands-on um, and, and involved in our communities as it is to writing checks and creating programs. Um, it also comes back to our core values. Uh, we are good citizens is one of the, the, the core behaviors um, that we strive to exemplify across the company. Um, and I think with that comes a, a bias toward action among our, our team members. So there's an interesting dynamic here because Inspire Brands, and maybe you should just um, speak for a quick moment about the brands themselves <clears throat> within the portfolio at Inspire Brands, because you you referenced um, core values, and yet you do have very different brands, right, all within the portfolio. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about how do you get to that sort of universal sense of shared values and things like that across these different brands. But maybe you should start by just um, for the listeners who don't know the portfolio as well. And what is the Inspire Brands portfolio? Sure, that's a great question. And, you know, we're only four years old. We just turned four in February. So um, a lot of people may not be familiar with Inspire. And that's okay because they're more likely familiar with our brands. Um, surprisingly to many uh, is that we now have about 
32,000 restaurants globally, uh, making us the, the second largest restaurant company in the United States. Our portfolio includes Arby's, Baskin Robbins, Buffalo Wild Wings, Jimmy John's, Sonic, uh, and Duncan, of course. I, I left that out in alphabetical order. But um, so, you know, brands that I think people are very familiar with uh, across the country um, and a nice mix of uh, different day parts and, and different customer needs that we can address with the brands that are in our portfolio. And so these brands have come together and they've been headquartered in different parts of the country, right? They've come from different, different places historically. Um, and yet you really are driving this sense of a universal mission and universal values across them. Um, so can you talk about, you know, maybe how you go about, you know, creating that sense of universality and shared mission and shared values? You know, it's interesting with each acquisition, we've spent a lot of time listening. Number one, with each brand, we try to understand from the franchisees and the team members, you know, what is the culture of that brand and how can we continue that essence? So there have been brand values that were inherent with each brand that we wanted to continue. And as we formed Inspire, we said, how do we let that personality continue to, to live through and that distinctness of brands across the portfolio, but yet to your point, still have a universality. Um, and so we introduced core behaviors um, that unify across all brands from Inspire. And they're all very complementary. It may be different words, but for example, I talked about good citizens earlier. That's one of the core behaviors of Inspire. At Arby's, that may manifest itself as their core, uh, their brand value of making a difference. Or at Buffalo Wild Wings, their brand value of community. Um, so there's a little bit of a different flavor at each of the brands, but it all ties to a very similar uh, behavior and value. So it's interesting. Uh, I know you're a member of the Arthur Page Society. <clears throat> and at Arthur Page, over the years, a lot of the, the content and the discussion centered around this idea of the CCO getting a seat at the table. Now it's much more about well, what do you do with that seat? Because it's happening or has happened in many large organizations. The CCO has that larger seat at the executive table, whether that's in reporting relationship or just you know being sought out for counsel, those kinds of things. Um, you know, and the corporate narrative is playing a bigger role in driving business value. Um, one of the components of that is obviously something you've spoken a lot about, you have a lot of passion for, um, which is looking at ESG and how ESG um, you know, is a driver for the business. So you've got a four-year-old company, you've got brand values, you've got company values, there's a lot of sort of complicated things in here. You guys have a massive supply chain, a massive footprint. Can you talk about ESG and like, what is the role of it in the business? And how do you kind of like see the forest for the trees when you've got so many moving parts? It's such a great question because every company is, you know, keeping this top of mind right now. Uh, ESG was recently added to my title and we're in a unique position too, because we're a private company. So a lot of the initiatives that we have in place are because they truly are the right thing to do and they're good business decisions. Um, but we're also looking at other ways that we can provide meaningful impact to the communities where we operate. Um, years ago, and, and this is unusual for a private company, but we did our own CSR reports. We felt it was responsible to provide some transparency 
to our, our corporate social responsibility initiatives without the pressure of outside influences requesting that information from us. Uh, we're also very transparent about our economic impact in the communities where we live and work. And we have an Inspire Impact page that you can go to and break it down by state to see the level of jobs that we're creating, the um, economic impact that we're providing back to the communities. Um, that's always been core to who we are, just being transparent, authentic, and honest uh, about the way that we are good citizens in, in the communities where we live and work. So I have to ask, you don't have shareholders, and, and actually sort of activist shareholders have been in many ways driving the ESG agenda for, for corporate America. Um, you now have ESG in your title. Are you sort of the champion pushing that agenda? Are there external forces doing it or are there other executives within the company? Is, this, is it just obvious to people or is somebody, you know, does this still need to be championed? It needs to be championed. I like our approach though, in that we're all ESG officers in our own respective realms. So, you know, it's incumbent on everyone to look for opportunities to reduce our carbon footprint. Or if you're a hiring manager, are you bringing in a diverse slate of candidates and having them interview with a diverse panel of people? Um, and I think that's what makes Inspired unique. Um, and one thing that I love about the company is that it is ingrained across the team. It's not just, oh, he has ESG in his title, so all things ESG go to him. Uh, it, it's really a dispersed responsibility. Yes, you need a corporate champion from the inside. And I will say our CEO, Paul Brown, is probably as much that role as, as anyone else, which certainly helps. That always helps um, to have to have the person in the top job um, supporting. One of the the things that you've um, you've mentioned, spoken about recently, that you're personally proud of is um, witnessing during all the trials and tribulations of COVID, your team's ability to pivot, adapt, and progress. Um, a lot of teams never really kind of find out even if they're able to do that, right? Because there's a way of doing things. They just kind of keep going. Things are going well. You don't necessarily have to pivot and adapt. You can just progress, right? Um, your team was forced to rise to the occasion, right? So can you talk about the, the culture, the team structure that you've nourished before the pandemic maybe, and how did that enable your team to pivot and adapt as they did? You know, I think number one, it was empathy, showing empathy, understanding that people are coming from very different places. Their entire work style has been disrupted. You know, their home life, they may be working parents who now suddenly are also teachers. Uh, so attentions were divided. Uh, and we really strive to provide as much flexibility and understanding as possible. And it was so, so great to see this team step in and say, hey, I know this person on the team is going to be absent for these hours while they're teaching science to their fourth grader at home. And so I'm going to step in and help here. Uh, and that's what I've just been so proud of this team is their ability to, to, to recognize that, jump in and help wherever needed to, to do those things, to adapt, to pivot, to progress. So you know, as challenges arose, we looked at, okay, that's not working anymore. What's a new communication channel, for example? Uh, we increased our uh, brand town halls, or not brand town halls, our town halls for the company. We uh, increased them to a weekly basis, just so we were communicating with our teams 
weekly and saying, hey, here's what we're seeing, here's what's going on, here's what we're doing in our restaurants. I think another thing that was really important was keeping top of mind that we are a restaurant company. And as a support center, we are truly here to support our restaurant team members. Uh, and they were on the front lines of ever-changing local and state and federal mandates. Uh, so we brought their stories back to the support center, even had a lot of them speak to the support center directly during COVID to talk about their experience in the restaurants. Um, and that was really the filter that we put on a lot of decisions and discussions was how is it affecting, you know, the hundreds of thousands of team members that we have across the country who, who really are on the front line and, and don't have the benefit, quite frankly, of working from home. They have the same stresses and challenges that we do, uh, you know, but they're in the restaurant doing everything they can to continue to provide community, provide their communities with food. So. Do you have the silver bullet, the answer that everybody in your seat is looking for when it comes to having desk employees versus non-desk employees and trying to have a consistent drumbeat of internal communications with people that are not, you know, in the Microsoft Teams environment or whatever environment it is that you guys are using internally? Um, do you have the silver bullet on how do you stay connected <laughs> with your frontline employees? Does, this, does the silver bullet exist? I don't know. Uh, I am really proud of what we have done. And we spent a lot of time, we did a lot of research. We're very um, analytical and data-driven and we have the benefit of having an in-house, extremely robust analytics uh, department that supports us as shared services. Uh, but we did a lot of talking to our team members before there was the official return to work. Uh, and what we ultimately came up with was that people want flexibility. There were things that we learned during the pandemic that we wanted to continue. And there were things that happened during the pandemic that may have um, allowed some, some bad behaviors, things that we don't necessarily want to continue. Um, things like not having that uh, camaraderie of being able to have a hallway conversation with someone, uh, relying on Zoom when it could have been an email or a phone call or an in-person conversation. You know, So there was some course correction um, as well as some new things that we learned that we wanted to incorporate across the company. So we introduced a, a program called In Good Company, and that was the way that we brought people back together. And we started with reminding people the magic that happens when we're here together and you have that hallway conversation, or we have a beer wall at our office and you'll see people meet after four o'clock there and have a conversation. And that's really where a lot of the, uh, business decisions, quite frankly, happen. That's where a lot of the innovation happens or in those discussions. So knowing that's some of the secret sauce to what makes Inspire tick, we wanted to bring that back, but at the same time, provide flexibility. So we are very flexible with, you know, if you want to take a conference call in the morning because you learned that not having to, to do that one hour commute gave you time back, whether that was time to pour back into your work or back into your family, we want to continue that. So um, we, we've really encouraged flexibility above all else. Uh, and we're about two months into the In Good Company program now, and it's amazing. It's so great to have people back here in the office. And I think people can breathe a sigh of relief of, you know what, it's okay if I need to leave early today. It's okay if I need to work from home on Thursday because the cable guy's coming between the convenient hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. 
so that you know that's something that we learned during the pandemic that that shifted the culture of Inspire that um, I'm really proud of. Communications being centered to that, of course, working cross functionally with our partners like HR and legal, but really proud of the way that that shook out with the In Good Company program. That's great to hear, and I want to I want to pick up on something you said a couple minutes ago when you were. Um, you know, g- giving credit to the analytics team in your organization and being data-driven. And <clears throat> early in our conversation, a number of the things you said sounded like you were referencing intuition, doing the right thing because it's the right thing, right? And you have to wonder at some point, of course, does the company come back and say, right, but how much is the right thing worth? Right? How much do we spend on doing the right thing? And, and how do we measure the value of making the right choices, supporting people, doing the right thing, participating in the community, all the things that you've been talking about. But at some point, do we need to measure, you know, like to what extent we invest in that or how, how, we, how we get a return on the efforts we're putting there? Have you opened that door yet? Is it something that you've tried to, to evaluate yet? You know, that's something that we talk about a lot. Uh, and we do have the benefit of having uh, some of the best data and analytics scientists in the country working right here. We compete with the likes of Google's and Meta uh, for that talent. Um, and to have such a robust resource here at Inspire is, is, is definitely an advantage for us. I think a lot of that analysis informs the, the situation analysis, if you will, going into a decision. Um, there's always that degree of intuition. And I think too, on like some of the, the brand creative and the, the buzzy, stunny type things that we do, the, situa- the uh, analytics really help inform us on our consumer as well. Like what are they looking for? What's going to resonate with them? And then there's that degree of, in- of intuition where we say, okay, is this idea too edgy? Is it just right? Is it going to speak to the right audience? Um, so it's it's definitely a blend of both. It's that left brain, right brain um, a, approach to thinking that ultimately drives our decision. Well, and of course, I love that you've, you've opened the door now into the area that we like to talk of. You know, we, we call ourselves at Lippy Taylor the first earned marketing agency. And so earned creative, obviously, a lot of big concepts that we're big supporters of. Lots of agencies are big supporters of the idea of earned creative. Um, you guys have some great examples, you know, um, uh, some breakthrough programs that you've personally been involved with. I mean, one of my favorites is the vegetarian support hotline for Arby's, which obviously, you know, is a, is a, a meat oriented brand. Um, I'd love to hear you talk just about what are your thoughts on earned creative and the role it plays in sort of the integrated marketing landscape. Does it, you know, sometimes it sits over with the PR team. Sometimes it's more central. Sometimes you've got ad agencies that are that are bringing forward this kind of thinking. But like, how do you think about earned creative and where does it fit? Well, with six brands, I'll say it's not the, you know, it's not a cookie cutter approach for each brand. So it could be a little bit different by brand. Um, however, no matter which brand you're with in the portfolio, we know that earned creative is incredibly important and quite frankly, a secret weapon in our arsenal um, that, we're, that we're not afraid to use. Uh, you brought up Arby's. I mean, if you go back eight, nine years ago and the public perception of Arby's was in a very different place and it's the earned creative that began to change that perception. 
I think the inflection point for the brand, in addition to having more relevant products and improving the customer service and, you know, getting all of those things right, was the uh, Pharrell Williams moment at the Grammys, where he wore a hat that resembled our logo. We tweeted him, hey, Pharrell, can we have our hat back? And he responded, y'all trying to start a roast beef. And it just became this great relationship. And it was so unexpected for a brand like Arby's to have that kind of um, interaction within pop culture. And so that was a, aha, there's something here. Let's keep doing it. Now, it can't be formulaic. It's got to come from different directions, which got us to things like the vegetarian support hotline uh, or introducing uh, venison, a venison sandwich and painting one of our restaurants in camouflage in, in Nashville, like really, really understanding our, our core customer and then doing things in an unexpected fun way uh, that gets their attention. Um, that is a, a formula for earn creative that absolutely lives on and is applied across all the brands. Uh, this year, Arby's launched a flavored vodka uh, Buffalo Wild Wings partnered with Overtime Support on or, or Overtime Sports on a uh, merchandise collaboration. Uh, Duncan recently did a collaboration with Elf Cosmetics. Um, so it, it's really fun to see, and they're they're so different. You know, you can't take one of those ideas and apply it to any of the brands. Each of those ideas is right for the brand in which it was activated, uh, which which is another key part of the strategy. Um, so yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, earn creative is incredibly important to us and is a central part of the integrated marketing process. So if you think about just rewinding that a little bit, you know, you had these pop culture moments, you had this reinforcement along the way that, yeah, maybe there is a place for our brands to do this. Um, we hear frequently from people that are sitting in a similar seat to you. They see the vision of what brands like yours are doing and they see their heritage brand stuck a little bit in the past and they don't know how to get there right from here to there. Do you have any advice for them in terms of just steps to be taken or, you know, different ways to inspire the team or structure the team or, you know, any, anything that would help them get from here to there? Well, step one isn't super fun or sexy, but it's the, the step that you need to have in place first. And that's a, clean, crisp process. I think a lot of brands and, you know, I've worked on the agency side as well. We've got hung up in, okay, here's this moment in time. We need to activate on it, but it's got to go to legal and it needs to be approved by this group and the franchisees need to look. And by the time you're ready to activate against it, the window is closed. Uh, and that's, you know, going back to the, the Arby's example, um, it was three people on a text chain and approval from the CEO at the time to say, look, you guys, I trust you all. I hired you all for your creative thinking and for your ability to activate. So when you have an idea and you've all locked and it was advertising social media and, and PR, when you've, when you've locked on that idea, go for it. And so that, that tweet happened within minutes versus hours or even days at some organizations. Uh, so that may not be the, the fun thing to, to talk about, but process and just having a clean, clear process, removing as much bureaucracy as possible is, is number one, trusting your team. Um, and then I think second is having that uh, creative group of individuals working on it. You know, the, like I mentioned, the, 
Arby's idea wouldn't have necessarily been right for B-dubs or have been right for Sonic, um, but we had a group of people who truly understood our, our customer base um, and could get in a room and come up with the ideas that were right for the brand and could activate on them quickly. That's great. And I think that's great advice in terms of just, you know, how do you set yourself up for success? Um, so speaking of which, as you look forward, you know, and you think about sort of the the mindsets, the approaches, the capabilities that are going to lead to success for the next, you, you said the last nine years, I think is, is what, you know, it took for Arby's to get from Pharrell to today. So the next nine years, let's say, you know, what are the, the capabilities, the approaches, the mindsets that you think as an industry, we need to embrace? You know, I think passion, and, and that's one thing that I hire for. I want to see people who are truly passionate about the brands that are part of Inspire and about the, 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 the pedagogy itself, you know, who are passionate about communications and, and PR or even internal communications, um, our foundations. You know, we want people who, who are passionate about the work that they're in. I think that will increasingly or not increasingly, but that, you know, that's super important to me. Uh, the other thing that's increasingly important is an understanding of data and how data can drive decisions, how to have that conversation with um, our analytics team on what to ask for, what to look for, what are the trends that we're seeing that, that, that we can jump on. I think that's going to be super important, particularly for the brand communicators uh, going forward. And, and, and that's something that we hire for. I think that's good advice. Passion in data. And if you're passionate about data, then that's all the better, right? It all comes together then. <laughs> exactly. Right. But Chris, um, well, I think we're, we're at the end of our time here. Um, so first of all, let me just say thank you. I think this has been really excellent. I think our, our listeners are going to be thrilled to hear the, the insights and the advice you've given. Um, so thank you for sharing your time and your, and your advice with us. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks for the chat. All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Chris Fuller. Number one, the key to effective CSG is transparency. One of Inspire's brand's tenets is being action-oriented, and as such, they do an impressive amount of social purpose work. Chris claims that listing out all CSG plans, actions, and impacts in a public forum is critical to ensuring success. Inspire publishes everything from the number of jobs they've created to the economic impact they're having in the communities that they serve. This type of transparency brings a high level of accountability to ESG plans that otherwise could have remained on the shelf. Number two, data can inform intuition. A common query among marketing leaders is, how do I become data-driven while remaining in touch with the kind of creative intuition that drives brilliant marketing? According to Chris, the two are intertwined. Chris claims that the data and analytics his best-in-class team are able to provide enable and inform his team's creative intuition instead of stifle them. This is the left-brain-right-brain balance that's critical for marketing leaders to grasp. Number three, stay flexible, but encourage in-person meetings. Chris claims that during COVID, flexibility was key to enabling his people to adapt and pivot to the major changes they faced. 
Fast forward two years later, Chris and his team had to correct some of the imbalances caused by their remote work agreements, specifically the lack of team cohesion that can occur with an over-reliance on Zoom and a lack of in-person meetings. To counter this, he introduced a program called In Good Company, where the sole purpose was to get his people back to meeting in person regularly while remaining flexible on remote work policies. Chris, like many leaders, understands that there's a certain magic that occurs with face-to-face meetings that simply cannot be replicated. Chris even went so far as to say that the biggest business decisions and innovations occur during in-person meetings. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at LippyTaylor, that's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R, and on Twitter at the same handle. To learn more about us, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thanks again for listening to Frictionless Marketing. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.